Welcome to the First Take Podcast with Simon King, Michael Flanagan, and myself, Virginia Lee. On this week's episode, we discuss confirmation of positive top-line data for AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo's in HER2 and HER2 low breast cancer, Amicus Therapeutics' decision to step back from a gene therapy spin-out, and whether GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi's long-awaited COVID-19 vaccine has arrived too late to make a meaningful impact. Please like, subscribe, and thanks for listening. AstraZeneca said this week that a closely watched breast cancer study has been successful. Simon, can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so this is the Destiny Breast 04 study, which is evaluating in HER2 a next generation antibody drug conjugate that AstraZeneca in licensed from Daiichi Sankyo uh, for an upfront fee of 1.35 billion in March 2019. In HER2's already been approved as a third line treatment for metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer, and it's currently awaiting approval as a second line treatment for HER2 positive patients as well where it looks well positioned to become a new standard of care based on impressive data that was presented at ESMO last year. The study that's been confirmed as positive this week is evaluating in HER2 in HER2 low breast cancer patients, which is important because a HER2 directed therapy has never shown a benefit in this population before. And indeed, using HER2 low designation could represent an entirely new way of categorizing Uh, breast cancer patients. And and does that come with potentially significant commercial benefits? Well, it does depending on the data. In terms of the breast cancer population, HER2 positive patients account for approximately 15% of all cases. And then of the other 85%, it's estimated that around two thirds or 55% of all breast cancer patients could potentially be classified as, as being HER2 low. So HER2 overexpression or HER2 positive patients, and that's arguably where we've seen the most successful sort of biomarker treatment strategy, I guess you would say, in any cancer indication. Those patients are defined um, where the cancer uh, has a cell surface HER2 score of of three plus uh, via an IHC assay. And by comparison, the the new AstraZeneca and Daiichi study enrolled patients scoring a a plus one or a plus two on an IHC assay. And they've typically been defined as non or borderline HER2 expression patients where currently approved HER2 directed therapies, the the most well-known, I guess, is Herceptin, uh, are currently not used. And so it's in these patients where in HER2 has been shown to work, which means some overlap with the two other big categories which are used to define the breast cancer population. And that's the the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patients and so-called triple negative patients as well. Um, Results have only been top lined as positive at the moment. So we need to see detailed data, including sort of various subgroup analysis to understand how in HER2 compares to the current treatment option of of chemotherapy in both these categories in the settings where in HER2 has been studied. And those subgroups will be by IHC level, in other words, you know, the the level of low HER2 expression, but also by hormone receptor status. Um, The the language that AstraZeneca's press release has used sounds promising, 
and it says that the efficacy has been seen irrespective of HR or tumor status. And then, you know, commenting on the top line data this week, analysts at Wolf Research made the point that the fact that the overall survival endpoint has been met at the interim analysis suggests that there's been, uh, you know, there's a wide and a deep benefit with her 2 I, I guess, you know, in, in conclusion, the best case scenario for AstraZeneca and Daiichi is that these data succeed in creating a large new market segment within her 2 as a new standard of care. And with HER2 testing already pretty standard in breast cancer, um, you know, approval and use of her 2 in these HER2 low patients should not necessitate a huge change in medical practice. This particular study, it's worth noting, is evaluating use of her 2 after one or two prior therapies. So it'll be used to file um, for use in the third line setting, but there's data from a second line study, which is due to read out next year. And then there are trials in other her to expressing cancers such as gastric cancer that are also ongoing. So the upfront payment AstraZeneca made three years ago looks like it's paying off then. Yeah, it certainly does. And, and analysts have suggested that if these detailed results are on the, you know, the more positive end of the spectrum, this setting could add billions of dollars in peak annual sales for her to. It's also great news for Daiichi with the deal potentially worth sort of just shy of $7 billion to them in terms of future milestone payments. And it's also worth noting that AstraZeneca actually went back to Daiichi a year later in mid 2020s in license another antibody drug conjugate. In this case, it's one that's targeting TROT2 and that was also for an upfront cost of a billion dollars. And AstraZeneca management has sort of recently been suggesting that actually this second ADC could be larger in terms of peak sales than in her two. And there's some important lung cancer data that's due next year. So I think generally it's all positive and it speaks to AstraZeneca's focus on ADCs um, for sort of future pipeline growth in the oncology field, but also the momentum that this drug modality uh, continues to gain across the sector in general. Uh, speaking of new modalities, gene therapy has been dominating the headlines in recent weeks. Uh, today, Amicus called off its plans to spin out its gene therapy unit via a SPAC merger. Virginia, what happened here? Sure. So I'll start by backtracking a bit um, to 2018 and 2019, when Amicus had been actively building up a portfolio of rare disease gene therapies. It gained several early stage programs through its acquisition of Selenix and then licensed additional gene therapies through a broad research collaboration with UPenn around some candidates for lysosomal disorders and other rare diseases. So it was a bit of a surprise to investors last September when it announced its plans to split off its gene therapy portfolio via a SPAC merger. And at the time, the company said the move would accelerate their path to profitability. Um, their goal was and still is to achieve profitability by 2023, uh, while also enabling them to maintain some ownership over their gene therapy pipeline. So that deal would have given Amicus a 36% stake in the spin out, as well as co-development and co-commercial rights to a couple of programs. But this morning, Amicus cited unfavorable market conditions and a challenging environment for standalone gene therapy companies as their reasons for calling off that deal. And the environment has indeed been challenging. Um, the XBI biotech index is off about 26% year to date, and gene therapy developers in particular have had a run of bad news. 
So just last week, we saw a clinical hold for homologies, phenylketonuria gene therapy, and Biomarin said its ongoing hold for its competing gene therapy program could extend for several quarters. And those are just the latest updates. We've had several high-profile safety events and, and setbacks for clinical gene therapy programs over the last year. So what's next for, for Amicus, and, and what are the implications for other gene therapy companies? So for Amicus, they are planning to make cuts that will generate about 400 million in net savings through 2026. And details on what exactly that means will be forthcoming, but this will presumably include some cuts to the R&D team and to its gene therapy pipeline. And as for other gene therapy companies, Amicus is basically highlighting what we already know, which is that there are still plenty of challenges to overcome in this space, particularly as it pertains to AAV gene therapies and issues around toxicity and durability and redosability. And I, I do think it's worth noting that despite all of these challenges and safety setbacks, there is still a lot of money going into next generation gene therapy startups and a lot of pharma interest in gene therapy platforms that are looking for ways to address these immunogenicity and dosing issues. Um, just, just this week, we saw Takeda sign a $2 billion deal with Code Biotherapeutics to develop gene therapies using Code's non-viral delivery platform. And on Thursday's earnings call, Amicus's management team named non-viral delivery technology as something that they might explore down the line. So I think today's news is a reminder that gene therapy still has a very long way to go as a modality, and this is another bump in the road, but there is still a lot of interest in finding a path forward with next-gen platforms. Michael, it sounds like Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline may finally be reaching the finish line with their COVID-19 vaccine. What's the, what's the story with that? Yeah, so, you know, they, GSK and Sanofi appear to finally be you know, reaching the threshold of approval with their, their COVID-19 vaccine. You know, the, there's been a lot, a lot written about this, um, you know, partnership and program over the years, but it's just been kind of slow moving. The, the partners got, uh, they fell behind early. They fell behind Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, and those types of companies, J&J. &J. They fell behind early in the pandemic and, you know, basically been playing catch up ever since the first iteration of their vaccine. Uh, this is a protein-based vaccine. It failed to elicit the strong enough immune response. So they basically had to go back to the drawing board and came up with this new one. And this new version uh, finally achieved the, the phase three results that they were, they've been waiting for. And the data showed just this week that the vaccine was 58% effective at preventing symptomatic disease. Uh, and more importantly, it was 75% effective against moderate to severe disease and then 100% effective at preventing hospitalizations and death. You know, trying to compare that with the other vaccines at this point is a bit of a, you know, it's borderline impossible given the way vac uh, variants have emerged and, you know, just sort of it's a dynamic situation. Um, but, you know, GSK and Sanofi now will be uh, seeking approval of the vaccine. And uh, hard to imagine that it will make you know a big impact here in the U.S. or, or even in the EU, but obviously there's there's a, a huge need still for for vaccines in lower to middle income you know countries. So that's probably where, where it will have its its bigger impact. Um, and then you know lastly on a, on a related note, Moderna reported its earnings just today. 
the notable talking points were number one said spike vax is going to post 19 billion in sales this year and that a, a booster dose may be needed needed later in the year so lots still to come from the vaccines and vaccine companies 